this Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays of the year because it's a Sunday that we start a new book of the Bible. Today, we begin our 16-week verse-by-verse exposition through the book of 1 Peter. And church, I just want to be up front with you. I don't have time to mess around today. There's too much ground to cover. I usually ease you into the text, give you something that grabs your attention, and, and it shows you why you need it. Um, why do you need this text? Because God wrote it. Okay, I simplified that. It saves me about 10 minutes. Now let's hit the ground running. Uh, here's what I have for you today. The writer, the readers, the takeaways. The writer, the readers, the takeaways. It's that simple. And I just want to apologize in advance for how long I'm going to preach. <laughs> We're going to be here for quite a while. I'm usually about 45 minutes. Today, I'm an hour. Uh, but the good news is, uh, today's sermon will make my future sermons feel short. So, um, you got that. Let's get at it. Verse 1. Peter. Okay, we must stop here. <laughs> Peter was not his given name. When Peter was born, his mother looked at his father and said, Jonah, let's name this baby Simon. Jonah agreed, so his name was Simon Bar-Jonah. They didn't have last names in the first century. Your last name was Bar, meaning son of, and then the name of your father, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon was a fairly common name, like Michael in our culture. There are eight other Simons mentioned in the New Testament. Simon the Zealot, he loved his politics. Simon the Tanner, he loved his spray tans. <laughs> Simon, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Simon, the leper. Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross. I could go on and on, but you get the point. It was a common name. Simon Barjona had a brother named Andrew. They grew up in a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, both of those boys grew up on a boat, fishing poles and fishing nets in their hands since they were toddlers. Their father had a pretty successful fishing enterprise. There are numerous hints to that in the gospel records. A big house, multiple boats. Simon Barjona was basically the Bill Dance, or Roland Martin of the first century. Ring a bell? No, it's fishing guy on TV. I see I'm with a classier crowd. That's okay. <laughs> there are scenes throughout the gospel records that will give you a complete picture of this writer. The first scene I've already given you, he's by a dock, stepping on a boat. Peter married, he had a wife, we know that from 1 Corinthians. At first meeting, Jesus Christ, Simon Barjona began to follow him. And Jesus gave him a new name, Peter, meaning rock. Dwayne Johnson wasn't the original rock, Peter was. We often see him referred to as Simon Peter in the Bible. And that's how he came about those two names. One given at physical birth, another given at spiritual birth. One given to the son of Jonah, another given by the son of God. Scene one, by a dock, stepping on a boat. Scene two, leaving the dock, following the Lord. Simon Peter lived up to his name. He was a tough guy. He confronted Simon the magician, which is another Simon I didn't mention earlier. It was Peter who, after the Lord asked, whom do men say that I am? And the other men started naming Elijah or one of the prophets. It was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter became a leader. He was not only one of the 12 chosen to be with our Lord, but he was a member of the inner three. Simon Peter seemed to be the spokesman for the entire group. And this boldness didn't always work out for Peter. He once rebuked Jesus. Jesus said, uh, I will be crucified. Peter said, no, nah, you ain't. Peter had a foot-shaped mouth. Howard Hendricks used to say that Peter opened his mouth only to change feet. <laughs> Peter was the disciple who rushed in where angels feared to tread. Most people, when they start to read the Bible, develop a real affection for Peter because there's just something about him where we can relate. Uh, 
most people in churches aren't like Paul. Most people are like Peter. Paul was like, I, I, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, graduated with honors from the most prestigious school in the land. Peter was like, yeah, but I can tell you the difference between a bluegill and a bass. Well, Paul strikes me as the kind of guy who would read philosophers in the spare time. Peter was the kind of guy who went noodling for catfish in his spare time. Peter made rash vows. I will never deny you, Jesus. But he did. Three times, standing by a fire, he cursed and said, I do not know Jesus. We have the written account. The rock turned to Plato. Could you imagine watching a video of John Piper or John MacArthur spewing expletives saying, I don't know Jesus? That would be shocking because these two men have a long history of being a rock when it comes to standing for Christ. When the rock, Simon Peter, turned to Plato, it was shocking. J. Allen Blair wrote decades ago that probably no other person in Scripture appears so bold, so fearless, and so devoted. And yet at the same time, so unstable and distrustful. Scene three, by a fire, acting scared. Peter, pinballed between faith and doubt. Of course, we know John 21 happened, or better, the prologue of John's gospel happened, the resurrected Christ started a fire himself on the seashore and brought Peter to forgiveness. As the fire warmed the hands of that cold fisherman, a gospel fire began to warm his heart. Scene three, by a fire acting scared. Scene four, by a fire being restored. Fast forward, Peter as an old man takes the quill under the inspiration of God and pens this very letter, 1 Peter. When Jesus predicted Peter's denial, he told him, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. When Jesus restored Peter after his denial, he told him, feed my sheep. The same Peter who sunk beneath the waves is now helping others to stand. The same sheep who was scattered is now feeding other sheep. He's doing some substantive feeding of some really needy sheep through the book of 1 Peter. He's seen five with a quill feeding the sheep. But from where is Peter writing? Well, he tells us in the last paragraph of the book He's writing from Babylon. But there's no evidence in the Bible or in church history that Peter ministered in ancient Babylon where Daniel was. Uh, there, was there was another little town in, in Egypt called Babylon, but Peter was never there either. I, I believe Babylon was a cryptic name for the city of Rome. And I'm not alone in that. Scholars have agreed on this since the second century. It was not unusual for persecuted believers to write in code. Babylon is actually used in Revelation as a code for Rome. Babylon was the historical enemy of God's people, the Darth Vader of Israel. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You could just as easily expect a letter from him to open with the words, Peter, the man who denied Jesus Christ. But instead we have this lofty title, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. William Carey, the man we call the father of modern missions, you so mightily of the Lord, wrote these words in his journal during his days of inconsistency and failure. This entry is marked the year 1794. And it reads... My soul is a jungle when it ought to be a garden. I can scarcely tell if I have the grace of God or not. 
I am perhaps the most inconsistent, cold creature that ever possessed the grace of Christ. If God uses me, none need despair. You say, Kyle, you, you don't know what I've done. No, friend. You don't know what Jesus has done for you. Forgiveness is not based on if you deserve it. Learn from the life of Simon Peter and the life of William Carey. There's usefulness after an embarrassing failure in life. The word apostle is used here in a technical sense. Uh, Peter was personally commissioned by Jesus. He does not feel the need to defend or justify his apostolic office. He just lays it out there. Those who held this office had authority at least equal to the Old Testament prophets. For the apostles could speak and write God's very words. Wayne Grudem notes that apostle is the only office where the words of Jesus Christ are added. You don't find prophet of Jesus Christ or evangelist of Jesus Christ or teacher of Jesus Christ. The original construction could be rendered Jesus Christ's apostle. Apostles were recognized to have an authority distinct from even the great early church leaders such as Ignatius or Polycarp of Cl or Clement of Rome. I Ignatius actually writes in his letter to the Romans, I do not instruct you as Peter and Paul did. They were apostles. I am a convict. The work of the prophet and apostle are finished. Church, there are no more prophets or apostles. The opening greeting in 1 Peter is hardly a customary hello. It is a theologically rich and densely packed treatise. The writer, I like the, the sound in the back. I, was, I didn't plan that, but I like that. The writer, da -da -da -da. now the readers. The readers are described geographically, sociologically, and theologically. Notice verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter addresses a group of churches in northern Asia Minor, scattered over a hundred and in 30,000 square miles, a land area about the size of California. It constituted of, of hundreds of thousands of people. This area is modern-day Turkey. There's been a long history of God's people in this part of the world. You can see on this map that Peter is in Rome, in Italy, and he sends the letter through a courier to these areas encircled in red. And the order they're listed in your Bible is unique because you might expect it to follow a west to east route hitting the areas closest to Rome first and then moving out. But Tom Schreiner says that the courier began in Pontius because the persecution was more intense there. And he ended his journey in the port of Bithynia so he could sail off. Uh, most historians believe the letter traveled roughly in a circle. And it would be distributed to the local churches and they could make copies and read it aloud in their weekly gatherings. Now these areas aren't foreign to us. Pontius, we know that. that Aquila and Priscilla, that heavy-hitting theological couple, they came from this area. Galatia, you of course know the churches of Galatia who have a letter addressed to them. Galatia contained the, the towns of Derby, Lystra, and Iconium where Paul ministered several times in his church planning effort. Uh, Cappadocia, we know from Acts 2 that people traveled from that area to hear Peter preach at Pentecost, where 3,000 people were saved, and they returned to Cappadocia as missionaries. Asia, this includes cities like Lydia, Troas, Colossae, possibly Ephesus. Paul's evangelistic efforts explain why Peter can write to churches in most of these areas, but not all of these areas. For instance, Bithynia, 
You may remember that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel in Bithynia. We don't know how churches got started in that area. But God gets his gospel to his people. The point is that God's people are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Oak Grove, and Clarksville, and Hoptown, and Elkton, and Adams. The readers, geographically, scattered. Sociologically, strangers. Notice the phrase in verse 1. Exiles of the dispersion. In some Bibles, exiles is translated pilgrims or aliens or strangers. It's all the same thought. I I want you to pick up that Peter is using Old Testament language. And this this isn't the first time. Uh, Remember, he said he's writing from Babylon. But that was a common code word among Christians for Rome. Babylon, that's an Old Testament word. Now he uses the term exile, another Old Testament word. Why? Because he wants these readers and all these churches to view themselves like Israel in Babylonian exile. Christians in this world are like Jewish exiles in Babylonian captivity. He wants you to have a grid to see life that way. And it makes sense that Peter would use Babylon in a symbolic way because he views the Christian church as people in exile. The dispersion, or diaspora, was a technical term used to refer to the dispersing of the Jews throughout the world, first by Assyrian Assyrian captors and and then by Babylonian captivities. They were foreigners in a hostile land. A people living in exile, expelled from Israel, expelled from the holy city, living away from their homeland, dispersed throughout the world. They were a displaced people group, living in a pagan environment. The dispersion is another Old Testament Jewish word. But Peter uses it for these local New Testament churches filled with both Jews and Gentiles. He says, you... You are outsiders, strangers, exiles in a wider world. When this term is used in the New Testament, there's always a definite article in front of it. The dispersion. John 7, James 1. However, Peter drops the definite article and he uses the dispersion as a metaphor. There's a definite article in the English, but it's not there in the Greek. The, the, the people Peter is writing to are not exiles of the dispersion in a technical sense. They are not displaced from their homeland. They are choosing to live in these areas. And they are free to live in those areas. But they must understand themselves as strangers scattered away from their true home. They are dis- disenfranchised believers. The readers geographically scattered, sociologically strangers, theologically elect. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are... mm, Now that's an uncomfortable word. So what do we do at Faith Family Church when we encounter an uncomfortable word? We skip it, right? No, no, we deal with it. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, elect literally means to pick out or select from a group. It's a verbal adjective and Peter presents it as passive, which further highlights that the believer is the object of the electing action of God. Now, the doctrine of election has caused a a lot of heartburn in the church. This doctrine has been debated among Christians for centuries So let me dig into it and in the next 15 minutes answer every question you've ever had about it and put the 2,000-year-old debate to rest. I want you to see that Peter is using another Old Testament word, elect. Now, how you define the New Testament word election should not be different than how God defined the Old Testament word election. Elect in the Old Testament was a word that was reserved for Israel alone. In the Old Testament, Israel is designated as God's chosen and elect people. Deuteronomy 4, 
Psalm 106, Isaiah 14. Of all nations, God set his electing love on one nation, Israel. First Chronicles 16, 13, God, God calls Israel his chosen ones. In the Old Testament, Israel is the elect. They are the chosen by God nation. God's electing choice of Israel is put on display in a unique way in Ezekiel 16. God told Israel, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field and you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. And I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's the end. God told them, I didn't choose you because you were the best nation. You were the puniest nation. I chose you because I loved you. Deuteronomy 7, 6, Moses tells Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You need to see this. Israel didn't accept God, and then they became the chosen. They didn't accept God, and, and then they became the elect. Their election was out of their hands. Now, that's Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. In our text, Peter is carrying through the imagery of the church as the new people of God. The imagery of the church as the new Israel. The, the church, God's elect. The church, God's chosen. God has a chosen people out of the world to be his people. And the church, it, it is his people. And most Christians don't seem to have any problem, no problem with the fact that God chose the Israelites, even though they proved to be no more deserving than any other nation which God did not choose like the Amalekites, or the Hittites, or the Jebusites, or the Moabites, or any of the other mosquito bites. But when you start to say that God chose or elected us, then it can get a little hairy. Jesus did not hesitate to unashamedly and unapologetically unapolo teach the doctrine of election. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. Jesus said in John 13, 8, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus said in John, 3, John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. John 15, 16, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, <laughs> You boys didn't choose me. I chose you. After Paul and Barnabas preached in Acts 13, the text says, when the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's God's sovereign election. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because God elected you. And this is why you should see the doctrine of election as beautiful. This election was not based on anything you have done. Because you were not even on the scene when it happened. This election was not based on anything that God saw in you. Oh, she, she has potential. <laughs> no, it was based solely on grace. The doctrine of election is the most humbling doctrine in the Bible. Because it tells you that you had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. It crushes your moral pride. I know God chose me. Because I am certain that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. Charlie Spurgeon, my dead mentor, said, 
And I quote, I am sure that God chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I feel like I am forced to accept the doctrine of election. End quote from old Charlie. The sweetest doctrine in my life is knowing that God chose me. Now, I le I've left a, a lot of election loose ends on purpose, but I'm going to tie those up in more detail in the takeaways. So just wait for that fun. Now, let's bring it back to the text. I'm not denying that the word elect is insider language. David Helm says it's not a term to wave in front of those who do not know God. It should be used to bring comfort to those who do know him. Keep in mind that Peter here is bringing up the issue of election as an encouragement to these scattered believers. Not for them to start heated debates. Not to create doubt. But to cause them to thank God. The term is meant to encourage the church and remind them of God's great love. Throughout the New Testament, the word elect became a staple for describing the true state of Christians in every age. There are three phrases in verse 2 that modify the word elect. And we're going to tackle them one at a time. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Every Christian is chosen by God the Father. It took place in the deep councils of eternity and we knew nothing about it until it was revealed to us in this passage. I mean, it's here. We owe our full identity as elect exiles to the mysterious plan of God. Now, what does foreknowledge mean? It doesn't simply mean that God looked down the corridors of time and saw who would believe in Jesus and then elected them. God saw who would choose him, so he chose them. There are at least three reasons why that is not correct. It makes man sovereign in his, in his salvation instead of God. It gives undue credit to man for his salvation. And it assumes fallen man can seek God. Foreknowledge means foreloved. For God to forelove us is for God to fore... For God to foreknow us is for God to forelove us. Now, here's some more help with the word election. This word is used again, notice, in verse 20 of the same chapter. And it's used there in reference to Jesus. The death of Jesus Christ was foreknown by God the Father. Now we must interpret both words e the same in an equal way. This cannot mean that God the Father looked into future history and saw that Jesus would choose to die so God the Father made him the Savior. No. Even before creation, God had chosen both the people who would be redeemed and the agent who would redeem. And listen, if before the creation of the world, God chose you, he isn't going to lose sight of you now. Elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now the Spirit is the agency or person by which God makes his electing foreknowledge operative in the lives of his people. The Spirit produces sanctification. It is the Spirit who first stirs your heart to desire God. It is the Spirit who first stirs your heart to repent of sin and ultimately quickens your understanding of the gospel. After the Spirit positionally sanctifies us, he practically sanctifies us by gradually freeing us more and more from remaining sin. Continue to the third. Elect for, the, elect for obedience to Jesus Christ. Christ gives us grace. We owe him obedience. Elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. For sprinkling? I don't like sprinkling. I'm a Baptist. We don't sprinkle. We immerse. The Methodists and Presbys may struggle with that Greek word study baptizo, but we don't. But wait, 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 wait. There is a sprinkling that we must hold to. 
To fully understand the sprinkling phrase, we must go all the way back to the Old Testament. All the way back to Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, God has given his people the Ten Commandments and a lot of other commandments. And they pledge obedience to him. They will keep the commandments perfectly. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And in a dramatic scene at Mount Sinai, the mountain shook with the presence of God. And the people assembled to enter into covenant with God. Moses sacrificed a bunch of oxen, and he took half the blood, and he sprinkled it on the altar. And he took the other half, put it in a basin, and and this is what he did. He put his hand in the basin, and then he sprinkled it on the faces of the people, on the faces of Israel, on the faces of the elect. This is what we call the Old Covenant. And you know this is an allusion to the Old Covenant because it mentions sprinkling of blood. When the blood hit their faces, they entered into an eternal covenant with God. Now we know that the elect broke the covenant. Multiple times they were, they broke it. I mean, they were only good at one thing, breaking the covenant. And since man broke the covenant, we all are covenant breakers. And God decided to scratch the old covenant and make a new covenant. A covenant that doesn't rest on you obeying God perfectly, but a covenant that rests on Christ obeying God perfectly. God made a new covenant with his elect. He did it on another mountain, Mount Calvary. And that mountain shook as well. This time he didn't sprinkle the blood on our faces. He drew blood from the face of his son. Perfect blood. Sinless blood. Lasting blood. Blood that speaks. If you are a Christian, you don't do animal sacrifices anymore. You know why? Because you've been sprinkled with the final blood. This is the new covenant established by the blood of Christ. See, this is why, this is why we have a seminar on the Old Testament before this. You need the Old Testament to fully Understand the, the, the wealth, the beauty of the New Testament. By the way, the Trinity saved you. I tried to conceal that from you until this moment. Every member of the Trinity was involved in your salvation. Every member of the Godhead is involved in the gospel. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, the Son cleanses. You've been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. I love the way one old country preacher said it. He said it this way. It is the Father who thought it, and the Spirit who wrought it, and the Son who bought it. Salvation comes to us only by way of the Trinity, and one day will bring us home to the Trinity. Our great God, Three in one, and one in three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. As far as God is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. As far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one afternoon when I was 16 years old, throwing my hands up. And saying, God, I'm yours. I repent of my sin. It took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. They say, you must have been horrible. Friends, it took all three to bring you to salvation. Paul ends his power-packed theological greeting with, with these words. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is not a throwaway line. There are no throwaway lines in the Bible. Peter is writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers here. He he very wisely combines the traditional Hebrew peace and and Greek greeting grace. Clowney says this is not merely a wish. I hope it's with you. This is not merely a wish, but a declaration of God's blessing to the elect in Christ. The writer, the readers, the takeaways. 
I have five takeaways for you. Takeaway number one. Don't live like this world is your home. Live like an exile. You are temporary residents here, not permanent settlers. You are in exile. All of you, U.S. citizens, you are in spiritual exile. You're foreigners living in the United States. Does this world feel like home for you? It shouldn't. Just like the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem, you are exiled from heaven. Strangers on earth. Keller says you are resident aliens. You're part of the society, you're fluent in the language, but you're not home. So don't adopt all the customs. Don't prioritize what the world prioritizes. Sure, respect and honor the land you're in, whatever country that might be, but live differently because you don't belong there. You don't share their values. How are we to behave as exiles? Well, join me for the next 15 weeks because that's what the rest of the book is about. You know the, the hall of faith listed in the book of Hebrews chapter 11? That list consisted of of Jews and Gentiles, men and women. I like verse 13. It says, they all died in faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Friend, you are following in a long line of exiles. And if you feel like, I'm just not sure I belong to this world. Good news. You don't. You belong to a world that is to come. Takeaway number two. Be willing to face marginalization and persecution while in exile. Don't let it bother you that everyone else around you is different. That's what you should expect if you're in exile. You belong to a different kingdom with a different set of values. Church, I'm, I'm trying to prepare you. Your culture will misunderstand you more and more. They will malign and mock you more and more. Teachers, you will have to deal with ungodly curriculum. Store owners, you will have to deal, you will have to weather mixed gender bathrooms. College students, it will be social suicide to say that homosexuality is a sin. Mothers, every other parent is allowing their children to do this and watch that. You don't want to be out of touch with culture, do you? Hear me, church. Be willing to clash with your culture in order to align with Christ. You are the title of the exposition today, you are elect exiles. Your identity is based first in your relationship to God, elect, then in your relationship to the world, exiles. Elect exiles. You remember at the beginning of my sermon, I talked about the different scenes in the writer's life, the different scenes of Paul's life? Well, I left the, I left the final scene off. Scholars from the second century to now have nearly unanimously agreed that Peter was crucified in Rome, but not crucified like Christ, crucified upside down. Now, it's an interesting fact that Paul was martyred maybe a year later in the same city, Babylon. Well, that's the code word. Peter lived well as an exile, and he died well in exile. But now, he's home. Well done, Peter. Well done. Takeaway number three. Trust God when exile is hard. Some of you are facing it. I mean, really, really facing it. You're going through some kind of terrible exile. Do not forget. You are sojourners under God's care. God knew where you would be dispersed. He is the God of dispersion. You are on this journey to learn how to trust him while you're in exile. 
And every Daniel must learn it. Trust God when exile is hard. Takeaway number four. As a group of exiles, all of us, as a group of exiles, let's talk about election and evangelism, election and ministry, election and human responsibility, election and non-Christians. Election and evangelism. Some people say things like, those who believe in election don't believe in evangelism. That belief kills missions. <laughs> well, don't tell Paul that. Don't tell Peter that. They would be very surprising to them. Very surprising. Most of the missionaries you've read about had a robust belief in election. John Elliott to the American Indians. David Brainerd to the American Indians. William Carey to India. Robert Moffat, the first missionary to reach the interior of Africa. David Livingston to Africa. Adnarm Judson to Burma. Biblically or historically, it doesn't seem that people believing in election hindered missions at all. If anything, it took missions to new heights. Now, election and ministry. This doctrine should produce in you a belief that God builds his local church. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, If I did not believe in election... I might as well be preaching to horses and cows. You cannot, by your own ingenuity or planning, put one person into the kingdom. So you better pray for power and not depend on your own gifts. Now, to those of you, like me, who have a strong belief in election, remember that most of you that have a strong, robust theology of election were actually converted to Christ in churches that didn't believe in it. Don't appear ungrateful to those who first brought the message of the gospel to you. Even theological rivals can honor and learn from one another. George Whitfield, who believed in election, said to John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, who really didn't believe in election, he said, and I quote, I love and honor you for God's sake. And when I come to judgment, I will thank you before men and angels for what you have under God done for my soul, end quote. Here, here's what I found. Most people don't reject election. They reject your obnoxious manner in which you talk about election. <laughs> this doctrine was not given to you to win an argument. It was not given to you to appear intellectual. It was given to you to humble you. And if election doesn't drop you to your knees... I don't know what doctrine you actually hold to, but it's not biblical election. Mark Dever always says that <laughs> some young people, when they first discover election, they need to be locked up in a cage for three years and then finally let out, and maybe then they could do the church some good. Friend, I want to remind you, if people don't parse election the exact same way you do, it doesn't mean they're heretics. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is one of our other pastors, uh, Dan Herbster's mentor. Yeah, I, I think I said that, yeah, like Martin Lloyd-Jones is not one of our pastors. He would be, um, but he's the dead mentor of one of our other pastors, Dan Herbster. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this topic said, as long as someone tells me that we are all saved by grace, that God calls all men everywhere to repentance, as long as both are prepared to agree on these things, I say we must not break fellowship. I'd like to recommend a book to you if you're interested in, in studying more about it because I know it's, a, yeah, it's tough, uh, especially some of the times when you first discover it. Um, there's a book entitled Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Chosen by God, R.C. Sproul. Check it out. Just some light reading for your afternoon. <laughs> All right, now let's talk about divine election and human responsibility. Divine election and human responsibility. When you first came to Christ, the emphasis lay largely on your decision. You made the choice to repent and believe. It was very real and very definite that you were acting. Now you look back and realize that God initiated that entire thing, which is exactly what the writer of Hebrews means when he writes that God is the author of salvation. He took the first steps, he made the first move. 
There is divine initiative operating in your life before you were ever aware of it. C.S. Lewis used to say that God pursues us long before we have any inkling of what he's up to. So let's do something really easy. Let's try to harmonize God's perspective on our salvation and our perspective on our salvation. That's simple enough, right? Uh, we can understand our will and the decision that we made, the decision we made to believe the gospel and trust Christ. We can understand that part of it. But we can only believe the Godward side of it because the Bible clearly and simply reveals to us that we were chosen by God before we were ever born. We can understand this. We can't fully understand this. God chose us in eternity past. That's divine election. We chose God in a moment in time. That's human responsibility, acting in faith, in God's initiating work of grace. Let's listen to old Charlie Spurgeon's testimony on this again. He says, I can recall the very day and hour when I first received the truth of election in my own soul. It was one weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, church, and I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, which I hope doesn't happen with any of you. He says, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, and the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, I thought. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith. Kyle, mean voice, Kyle, how do you reconcile divine election and human responsibility? I feel no need to reconcile friends. Both are in God's word. I accept both. There is a banner as I walk into heaven. On the front it says, whosoever will. As I walk into heaven and look back and read the other side of the banner, it reads, elect from the foundation of the world. Now, election and non-Christians. Non-Christians. Some of you are non-Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you cannot blame your lack of salvation on God. Well, well, I'm not elect. I'm not saved because God didn't elect me. Stop that nonsense. You're not saved because you love your sin more than you love Jesus. You're not saved because you refuse to repent. If you're not a Christian, you don't need to try to go figure out if you're elect. You need to repent. And if you have a desire to repent of your sins, right now it's boiling up in you. I have a desire to repent of my sins. That's not natural. That's alien. That's divine. That was given to you. You didn't work it up. I didn't work it out of you. You better submit to that. Election. If you are saved, God gets all the glory. If you are not saved, you get all the fault. Takeaway number five. You're not an exile under the old covenant. You're an exile under the new covenant. There's something that the Lord Jesus left us. He left it on earth. There's something that the Lord Jesus left us to be a continual reminder that we are under a new covenant. That reminder is the Lord's table. We're going to go to it today. Jesus picked up a cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, there are different views on the Lord's table. And I feel like I should share this with you. Uh, Zondervan published a very helpful volume entitled Understanding the Four Views of the Lord's Supper. The four views I'm about to show you in a bit on a chart. InterVarsity Press published a book stating five views and they added a, a, a Pentecostal view. Now look, I can't go through everything, but I, but I do want to give you the chart. You can take a picture of it and you know, print it out. Um, put it up in your living room right above the mantle. This was a lot of work. Transubstantiation. That's what Roman Catholics believe. 
that the bread and the wine literally change into the body and blood of Christ. Transubstantiation, Roman Catholics. Then there's consubstantiation. This is Lutheran. This is what Martin Luther believed. That the bread and the wine contain the body and blood of Christ, but do not literally change. Christ is actually present in, with, and under the elements. Then there's spiritual presence. This is what uh, most Presbyterians, some Reformed, Anglicans kind of bounce between spiritual presence and consubstantiation. But spiritual presence, that's what John Calvin believed. Christ is not literally present in the elements, but there is a spiritual presence of Christ. And then there's the memorial view, which is the, the Baptist view and some Reformed view. This is what Zwingli held to. Christ is not present physically or spiritually in the elements, but, but it is a memorial in which we remember and worship. Now, as you're going through information overload, looking at that chart, let me just give you three comments about the chart as a whole. First, Catholics call this an altar. We call it a table. To sacrifice Christ again is blasphemous. There is no warrant for that popish doctrine in the scriptures. There is no salvation in the sacraments. There is no forgiveness of sins in this exercise. I deny the papacy, and I want that on record. Second point, transubstantiation. The reformers strongly disbelieved it and said it was a medieval invention. They would say things like, we are not, we are not blood guzzlers, cannibals. Thirdly, figurative language. If I drew a picture and said, that's my house, you know that it's not my house. It's a picture of my house. Jesus said, this is my blood. No one at the table believed it was actually his blood in the cup. It was a picture. Alistair Begg says, any, any schoolboy would recognize this. Now, I hold to the memorial view of the table, which, in case you're wondering, is the correct view. <laughs> now, let, let me talk to Christians and non-Christians about the table. First, non-Christians. Uh, Non-Christian, if, if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm going to ask that you do not take the bread and cup, but take Christ instead. Receive him into your heart as those around you receive the food. And come and tell us about what you've done so that next time we can get you ready to receive the table as a child of God. Christian, you must take this table with understanding. It is a table of grace, not merit. We're here because of his blood, not ours. We're resting in his perfect performance, not yours. Jesus commanded us, do this in remembrance of me. He did not say, do this in remorse of me. <laughs> this is not a funeral. It's a celebration. Mom and dad, it's good for your children to watch you come to the table without them. They must realize they cannot live on your faith. God has children, but he doesn't have grandchildren. This is an amazing gospel opportunity for you. If they ask, why can't I get a piece of bread and a cup of juice? The correct answer is not, well, because you're not a member of the church or, or you're not old enough. No, don't waste that gospel opportunity. Unpack the gospel for the precious little souls. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.